I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, we have a very exciting guest. I've just gotten to know her recently. It's Andrea Haley. She is the CEO of Vote.org, the nation's largest nonpartisan digital voter engagement organization. Andrea led Vote.org to record-breaking growth during the 2020 general election, as well as the Georgia runoff elections, helping more than 4.4 million people register to vote and more than 3.3 million request mail-in ballots, leading a 50-state get-out-the-vote operation which made over half a billion voter contacts across the country. Andrea and Vote.org's work in 2020 has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, Bloomberg, and many other outlets. Andrea Haley, welcome to The Caring Economy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So we always ask our guests when they come on, first tell us a little bit about their life story, their narrative, how they got where they got. So I wonder if you might tell us a little bit, Andrea, about your life narrative, maybe where you grew up, how you found your career path, maybe some mentors along the way or pivots that you took. I started off in a family um, that always was very active in civics and civic engagement. I come from the kind of family that drove, we drove our neighbors to the polls. My parents were poll watchers, very active in our local community. I think I grew up with the um, understanding that at any time, voting rights and the ability to participate in a democracy could be rolled back. Family story is that, you know, on my father's side, we come from South Carolina originally, and my grandfather and my great-grandfather both fought in wars for our country and came back home to a state that didn't want to see them participate or, or to vote. Coming from, you know, that kind of background, it was natural to me to, you know, always get up and think about uh, how do I make sure that we preserve the right to vote, preserve the ability to participate in democracy, and how do we make sure that government really serves the people that they're elected to serve. I started off working on Capitol Hill and loved every second of that. I worked in constituent services, which, you know, entry-level job on the Hill, actually my favorite job up until the one I have right now. It's where people from the district call in uh, with different concerns and you get to work directly with them to try to match the resources of the office with what people may need in a district. And I enjoyed that tremendously. I went from there to working in all sorts of different campaigns and elections over the years. People who work in campaigns know it well, this feeling of like, this is the most important election ever, and this is the most important candidate ever, and you get really excited to keep going. And then you say, well, you know, eventually I'm going to do some other kind of work. And before you know it, uh, you're in another election cycle. Yeah. So I think over the years, I started to gain deep expertise and get out the vote operations. In 2016, I started an organization called Civic Engagement Fund, and there we incubated grassroots organizations that were not partisan in nature, but instead really helped people to be able to access their government and that were drawing large numbers of um, people in, into participation. The idea was, how do you on-ramp another, a new generation into democracy? We started doing research in states all across the country, and that research really led to the development of programs at vote.org, you know, did direct voter contact. And so stepping into the position of CEO of vote.org was really natural. And now I've had the opportunity of running the organization and the honor of running the organization for the last few years and running some of the largest get out the vote operations 
in the country. And it's a, a dream job getting to help voters every day. To and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in detail today. Sticking with your sort of your earlier days, it sounds like the civic engagement was definitely in the family DNA. You were not the exception. But how did you go from growing up, you said earlier in Colorado, to Capitol Hill? Did you choose a certain college, a certain college course? Did you have a mentor who got you there? How did you get from Colorado to Capitol Hill? I grew up between two different states. From there, I applied to George Washington University. Uh, when I went to George Washington, it was in, you know, it was in the heart of DC. So many of the professors at George Washington not only, you know, practice in theory, but are true practitioners in their day-to-day -day jobs. I think that I gained a lot of real-world experience being able to go to school at GW and really learn from people who also had, you know, careers in civics and politics. I studied political science. Then I applied for a job working for Patrick Kennedy on the Hill. At the time, he was one of the youngest members of Congress. I was accepted into that internship, and that opened up a whole new world for me. And I started that internship on September 9th of 2001. A few days later, I was new to DC, and a few days later, September 11th happened. We're really, obviously, it was a really sad time in our nation's history, but I think it made me kind of double down on the idea of public service and what can I do in this moment to be of service to our government, to our country, working on the Hill. I mean, I remember those first few days we, were, we weren't doing the jobs we were supposed to be there to do. We were trying to locate former staffers who moved to New York, friends and family of constituents. We were, we were really working around the clock to make sure help. And I think that then after that, you know, weeks went by and we had anthrax scares. We had everything. I think everyone else who was interning left the office and I stayed and truly never, you know, never left after that working in, in civics. I think if anything, I already came from a family that had this long history, but I think that starting to work right then um, at that moment in our country's history made me dig in even deeper. I did have a professor, Steve Roberts, who I looked up to a lot. He made a huge difference. He, it, his political communications class taught me a lot and a lot of history of political communications. But that was that when I walked into the office in Patrick Kennedy's office, there was a group, what, what I would consider now young staffers to me at the time, they seemed like the you know wisest people in the room, but everybody was actually pretty you know young in their 20s and really excited and motivated, highly intellectual, and really cared about the service part of public service. And I think in a lot of ways that office, you know, a lot of the people there became great mentors and teachers to me. And I met people who I'm still in touch with to this day. And it's been interesting to see the evolution that we've all taken over the years. People forget when you take those entry-level jobs and those first jobs, make sure it's it's really about the work you do and about how kindly you treat people at the end of the day, because you may look up and it may be 20 plus years later and you're still interfacing with the same people just in different capacities and different jobs. Everyone has, for the most part, really stayed in doing public service work and we all still know each other. And I think that office, I learned a lot of real life skills. So when I worked in the constituent service office, that was all about trying to understand different things like a constituent call in, one woman who called in and said she was in stage four cancer and she there was a drug that was going to be approved. It was coming out soon, but it was going to be too late for her. And then I was able to do the research and bring it to the congressman and start to write letters and advocate on her behalf for early usage 
of this drug, which we ultimately were able to achieve, or, you know, you just realize you're, you can make a big difference in people's mm-hmm. lives. It is really important who the people sitting in these different offices um, are. Mm-hmm the level of empathy they have. At a certain point, I switched over to the fundraising side. So then I was in a different office. And when I worked in fundraising, I learned, you know, all about really it's event planning, how to get buy-in, how to get people to show up, to care, to get motivated. I think that we had to, you know, travel the country trying to put putting together these events. And when you're doing work like that, you learn a lot. You're also speaking with people in every different, every different background and every different industry. And that taught me a ton how to pick up the phone and make cold calls and not be afraid, how to ask for dollars that you really need in service of a mission that you truly believe in. You know, I think those were things they don't necessarily teach you in school, but that I learned in that office. So I, you know, I think that office taught me a lot of, a lot of grit and just keep moving. I couldn't agree more. I think just acknowledging someone's humanity is a big step forward. We're so digitally driven now. A lot of young people aren't necessarily schooled or trained to make eye contact or to actually write a letter or to make a phone call or return a call, you know, the so-called, the so-called cancel culture. You really can't do that if you're in a public service role. And I sort of like the integrity of that. I had somebody who really wanted to get something accomplished in 24 hours. I was giving them a contact that I have that could really help them to, to get that work turned around quickly. You know, especially in civics, we often work on these tight time deadlines around an election. And I said, you need to call this person. And they were like, call, call this person. And they started making fun of it. They were like, like, bring, bring. I was like, no, seriously, you have to pick up the phone. If you need a quick turnaround on this, you need to call so-and-so over here. We're, you know, a digitally forward organization. But at the end of the day, to execute a lot of the things we need to execute by on important deadlines and dates, you have to be able to pick up the phone. You have to be able to ask, you know, for things in a straightforward way. And you have to understand the human element of it all. How do you train your staff and and engage them in that? Do they come already prepared because of the interview process they're vetted? Or do you have to train staff on sort of the basics or... I mean, it's a generational thing in part, but not exclusively. I'd like to say that we have a wonderful vetting process. You have a highly talented staff that, that makes it makes it through our you know application process. A lot of our jobs receive 700 to 800 you know applications for the for the job. Having said that, I do think there are some real differences in communication, and so especially generationally, I, we try to emphasize meeting people where they are. We do that in our work. You know, put voting messages. We integrate voting messages on the platforms and in the places we think our core demographics are going to be. We don't try to make them come to us to receive voting information. Um, so I think the same thing is true. You know, speaking with staff, I often say, you know, you have to meet people in the communication style and place where they live, whether that's um, if somebody lives on Slack, then that's Slack. If they don't, then you need to pick up the phone and call. If it's text message, text them, if you email. But at the end of the day, we often have a mission to achieve. And as I said, under short time deadlines. So um, when that occurs, you have to be really flexible in how you communicate and not demand that somebody communicates only in the way in which you're most comfortable. It's something that people on ramp into the organization, they start to learn as a is a core value of ours, whether it's in the work we do or how we communicate with each other, or we're a fully remote team. So that comes, you know, into play. People have different um, communication styles. And if you really mm-hmm. have a project, you need to get over the finish line. 
and you're managing it, you have to find ways to pull everybody together in a way that, that really works and gets it accomplished. So let's apply that then to this last election cycle. So we talked in the introduction about the 2020 general election, the Georgia runoffs, which were pretty epic. How did you catalyze all those millions of voters to get out and vote? Door-to-door canvassing? Was it emails? Was it mail? We have a few different programs at vote.org. And we have our registration programs and then our get out the vote program. And in our registration programs in 2020, we helped register over 4 million Americans. People who use our platform are 35 and under, combination of things. We had influencer strategies where influencers were posting about registering to vote. There've been a lot of questions about, does that really work? We actually can see the analytics on the back end almost immediately. So that part's really exciting. And we're still doing a lot of work to figure out who can motivate the most people to register or who the best voice is for someone in Indiana versus Colorado or Wisconsin versus Pennsylvania, those sorts of things. But we had a a strong influencer program. We have a lot of corporate partners because we find that employers are still a place where people trust to get nonpartisan voting information, whether that's how to register or how to request your absentee ballot. Program called uh, Election Day is a Holiday which companies partnered with us to give paid time off to vote. That affected about 1.8 million workers across the country. A lot of those partners also helped us to disseminate voter registration information and get out the vote information. We had registration side of things, also school program, working with students um, directly, especially in 2020 athletic to get to 100% registration. And then they then launched the the school-wide registration uh, challenge So that was great. We worked with schools like Temple, Butler, the University of Alabama. That was a great program. The University of Alabama football team registered to vote and then challenged the rest of the, you know, school to participate and to register. So that's, you know, how we, how we did that. The sports teams, because they're so core to the culture of the campus, that's why you go there and they have leverage. Yeah. We found that in 2020 athletes really made a big difference having, whether it was at the collegiate level or professional level, um, athletes really are looked up to on a campus, their voices are trusted. And Mm -hmm. so really this idea of like, who, who does somebody trust to receive in this day and age when our society is so polarized, who do they trust to receive information about voting from? And we found that some of the highest numbers, you know, came out of working with athletes. Other student leaders too. So when we ran our get out the vote programs, which are separate from the registration programs, um, we also ran a influencer program, which is a student influencer program. We would go on campuses and look at who had the largest followings. A lot of times athletes fell into that category too, but sometimes student leaders, or other people on campus. And then we asked them to work with us to send voting information out to their peers. And so that was one way that we you know, had to pivot during COVID because usually we had on-campus advertising mm-hmm. and during COVID, we didn't know who was gonna be on campus or not. And so the influencer program was born, but it was quite effective. So it's something we'll scale and do more of in the future. You know, For our get out the vote program overall, we made 650 million voter contacts in wow. communities color and among young people. Um, that's the largest program awesome. that I know of in the nation. That program reached people through all sorts of different ways. We have a wonderful partnership with WhatsApp. So we reached uh, Latino voters uh, through WhatsApp, directly creating a bot where people could ask voting information and in real mm-hmm. time, it would give them back the information they needed mm-hmm. to participate, stand up terrestrial radio program, which you know is not as digitally for digital forward as people think of when they think of vote.org, 
but is a tactic that we know cost-effective and well, during COVID when so many people were home is really reaching voters where, where they were. We also have an opt-in on vote.org where over 13 million people have opted into receiving text messages from us um, about get out the vote you know, about when they can participate in elections. So uh, we use that as a tactic. We use billboards, it'll add, you name it, we're there and telling people um, to vote. I think half the idea is just marketing voting itself so that you create excitement, celebration, joy around elections and get people motivated to get out there. And then with the college influencers, what is the platform of choice? Is it Instagram? Is it Twitter? How do you find the bigger influencers instagram is really you know a platform of choice those are the two and what about the brands i mean we talk here on the caring economy about the role of business and society so I'm, I'm happy to hear you cite that unprompted but can you give us some shout outs and some of the brands that have been really embracing this for the long haul you know we on-ramped over a thousand corporate partners for the paid election day as a holiday program we're really excited to see participation and see companies leaning in to this moment, I think it was really interesting in the last election cycle, though, because so many companies, they're used to advocating for the environment, for other issues, but they're not necessarily used to having to defend democracy itself. And that's where we really are. And so we've seen so many companies really think about their employee engagement and then their overall place in society in the states where they are. Last cycle, we saw great participation from Prudential, some of the usual suspects like Lyft and Patagonia, organizations like Under Armour. They, we did some, some great work with Under Armour. So let's go back to Georgia then. I mean, uh, well, let's, let's look at voter suppression writ large. I mean, it's just, it's become such an issue across the country. And I wonder... I know you're a nonpartisan group, but what do you say to the audience about the state of voting in this country? Is it under attack? Are those who want to put in new rules justified or? Yeah, um, the right to vote is definitely under attack in our country. We're getting to a place where it's not not even so much, you know, I think that it's dangerous because sometimes we frame these things in, in partisan ways. The truth of the matter is we're starting to see people one group of people who believe in a healthy, thriving democracy where every American citizen should have the right to vote, participate, and have access to the ballot box, and is seeing a group of people who absolutely believe in some other style of government. If we take a look at the framing that way, you can look at what's happening in particular states through that lens. We have the highest turnout in the 2020 election cycle that any of us have ever seen in our lifetime. On the heels of that, just a couple of weeks later, we had 400 voter suppression bills crisscross this nation in a coordinated attack. Mm-hmm. These bills came from one place. They were financed from one place. Uh, the language of it was written by a group seeking to lower the amount of engagement mm-hmm. happening um, and voting happening in our country. And so. Uh, the language was handed off to different state legislators across the country, was introduced very quickly, and in places um, where they could pass the, these bills fast, they absolutely did. We even heard directly from the head of Heritage, who came on and said, gave a speech and said that they then pressured governors to sign it within the quickest amount of time possible so they wouldn't look weak on these issues. And so that's exactly what happened in programs like ours, that it just done all this work getting people excited to participate in their democracy. We were celebrating the high numbers and um, you know that's something that as Americans, all of us should really care about and be excited about. And instead uh, we quickly had to get in, back into battle mode and say, oh my gosh, how do we make sure 
that people can still participate in future elections in light of these laws that are, are passing so rapidly. The idea was to shrink and to control the number of people voting. You especially see the you know worst legislation happening in places where the demographics are shifting. So in places like Georgia and Texas, where you right. have a higher number of people of color voting, you, know, you see these laws that are trying to limit access. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, something that at the end of the day is distinctly un-American because the idea should be that there's a marketplace of ideas that different politicians should then compete in that marketplace of ideas for votes. Mm-hmm. Not that you have unpopular ideas and then try to restrict the people who are from mm-hmm. voting at its core and anti-democratic stance. And that's before you add in gerrymandering and all the census results uh, and how they've affected these districts. I see that across the country. For the 2020 election, largest turnout turnout ever, approximately what percentage of eligible voters was that? That was somewhere around 60. I mean, I think we were seeing somewhere north of 60% of American voters participating which you know, doesn't sound that high. I think that actually gets to the fundamental systemic issue we have, which is that in a lot of elections, you have 50% or less people voting. When that happens, you cease to sort of have a true democracy when only a core group of people are participating. Problem isn't though that people don't care or that they're not working hard enough to, to vote or something like that. The pro- problem is, is we've designed systems that are intentionally difficult and that we have to jump people through many, many hoops. If we really wanted to see everyone participating and see this high participation repeated across the country or even get to 80%, which would be the dream for us is 80% voter participation, we would do things like have a national holiday so that everyone has the time you know, to vote. We wouldn't have it on a random Tuesday, be on the weekend if we're not going to have a national holiday. Um, and things that other countries do, like you can look at countries like Australia, famously, that have extremely high voter participation. And you can see that there's w- things that would, would create a system that we could get the largest number of Americans through. Instead, we create a system designed to get small numbers of people through. And we're fighting about things that, you know, in this day and age, we should never be arguing about. We're arguing about things like in some states, we don't even have online voter registration. So we're arguing about like, can we get online voter registration so that everyone can just go online and register to vote? And we're arguing about, should there be a drop box in a neighborhood so that you could just drop your ballot off um, at the drop box? If you would have told me a few years back that we're going to fight over drop boxes, I would have, you know, been shocked. But now that's sort of where we are, or can we keep polling locations open for longer periods of time so more Americans can you know, access it before or after work? I mean, these are the kinds of arguments that we're having. Can we have you know, at least 14 days of early voting in every state? These are basic system-wide issues that if we fix them, more people would participate. What we saw in 2020 is that voters were overcoming these things anyway. In my own home state, in, you know, in Indiana and in Indianapolis, in my polling location, I got out there and um, went to go early vote, just like everyone else, and stood in a seven-hour line. And just like everyone else, I had a job to do, so I couldn't stand there. I had to go back home and try again the next day. I went back three days in a row. My own team saw me getting voter suppressed in real time. And in Indiana, you can't just vote absentee if you're not 65 and over. So 
I had to keep going and try to, you know, show up. And, and eventually I did, you know, have the opportunity to vote, but how many people had to withstand those lines just to make their voice heard? It's, it's ridiculous in this day and age. Yeah, I had, um, I actually had to go through extra hoops to vote this past time as well, because I wasn't for some reason in the registration. It meant two different witnesses from two different parties watching as I got verified, having to have two envelopes, one piece of paper, and it all had to be signed and signed and inserted. And I was trying to figure out what was different this time than last. And I still don't fully understand, but I made it a point to be sure that I've gotten my new registration confirmed and I got my card. But so yeah, it was an exceptional cycle, I think. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we, we're grateful to have Andrea Haley with us. She's the CEO of Vote.org. Andrea, with the international, I wanted to ask you about Democrats abroad and Republicans overseas. Do you engage with them as at all in, in the work you do? Because there's a huge American diaspora, certainly around the world. Yeah, Vote.org actually started as an organization called Long Distance Voter. And the idea was to help voters abroad be able to request their absentee ballots. Absolutely, that's still part of the work that we do is to make sure that anyone can go to vote.org and request their absentee ballot, um, any American, no matter where they are. It was interesting for us because that meant that in 2020, we had one of the only vote by mail tools, digital tools that existed in the civic space. And quickly everybody needed that because not only did you have high numbers of people voting absentee from, you know, who were Americans living abroad, but you also had a higher number because of the pandemic here at home requesting their vote by mail. I think we had helped over 3 million people to be able to vote by mail during the 2020 election cycle. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. And it is still part of the work we do. It's great. I also wonder, sticking with the, the abroad, the drama unfolding with Ukraine and Russia right now, it's a, it's a nice shot in the arm, isn't it, for democratically elected governments and people who are engaged in their, their country's well-being? And I don't pretend to be an expert on you know what's happening in Ukraine. I'm absolutely not. But I think what we are seeing and what is permeating the American psyche is that democracies all across the world are under attack. Mm-hmm. And have been under attack. So where America is not alone in, in, in having some real issues and maintaining a healthy and thriving democracy. Hopefully all of us will, will realize that this is a global issue and we'll dig in to really protect our democracy, our very fragile democracy here at home. Sure that, that in future elections and election cycles, doing everything we can as a nation to, to you know, make sure that we preserve the right to vote. But yeah, I do think the situation in the war in Ukraine highlights that democratically elected leadership is definitely under threat and under attack. So Andrea, term limits and the Electoral College. So Electoral College, is it still relevant or is it antiquated? Do you have a a view? Electoral College, especially, you know, I do so much work speaking to students and younger people. And one of the first questions that always comes up is if my vote counts and really matters so much, what about the Electoral College? And I think the Electoral College can be extremely demotivating to people. Uh, You really want to feel like one vote you know, your vote counts and that it, that it directly affects the election, especially presidential election. When I talk about the electoral college, though, is the fact that, you know, only the presidential election gets decided by the electoral college. 
all of the other elections, all of your local elections and everything else is the electoral college does not affect. So I really talk to people a lot about participation in down ballot races, about Mm -hmm. the importance of filling out your full ballot and not getting too distracted in the electoral college debate or conversation. But yes, I do believe it's time for us, you know, to to rethink how the electoral college is, you know, administered in this country. In the meantime, important for us all to remember that the electoral college only affects the presidential and that everything else your vote really does directly translate into. So it's important for all of us to show up time and time again. Agreed, particularly down ballot. Secondly, term limits. I I always thought of government as an avocation that one went, if privileged enough, to serve his or her nation for a term or two. But now it's become a vocation where people spend their whole careers as elected officials. And I, I love a lot of the great old ones that we've had through the years from, you know, Pat Moynihan to Nancy Pelosi. But but is it too much? Should we try to have term limits? You know, vote.org doesn't have a stance on that. I think on my, personally, I would say it is important to make sure that government reflects the people that it seeks to serve. Mm-hmm. And that means that part of public service is something that a lot of people have kind of forgotten about as they make it lifelong vocations. And so there is a good argument for having, you know, limits that so that you can have new ideas and new people coming into the civic space and really making a difference. On the other hand, there is something about having true expertise and true understanding of, you know, complicated procedures and policies. Mm-hmm. So I think that you see some of the, you know, more senior uh, leaders able to navigate difficult waters that maybe junior people can. Part of the answer is also in how are we really mentoring the next generation of leaders? How are we really giving positions of leadership to the next generation? Are there, you know, are we really thinking about across this country, how we're setting the country up for success, not just in the short term, but in the long term? And I think that some of that leadership development is probably, you know, is probably the answer to some of this, because you don't want to throw out experience, but at the same time, you don't want to stifle um, new and new voices coming in with innovative ideas, able to create real change that may affect our society in, in really positive ways. So I also think that if somebody, you know, that when we have the same leaders for long periods of time, it does get more difficult to motivate and on-ramp new voters into the space because they figure, well, this is just the way it is. How am I ever going to change anything? And how is my voice ever going to be, you know, heard. And I think that's really important to think about too. I do think we could do a better job in general of mentoring and empowering the next generation. Absolutely. And, you know, we want to see ourselves, you know, in those roles. So it helps to have some fresh blood in there. I do a lot of career coaching in the past few years. I have integrated into that the concept of public service and running for public office. I, I meet some really amazing young people and I say to them, Yes, I, I can help them on the course that they're going on, but I also remind them that public service is something to consider as well, because if you've got a dynamic leader, he or she can really do more. They can both have their career pursuit, but then do the public service as I originally thought it should be, which is more of an avocation. So I'm with you on that. 
So ladies and gentlemen, today I'm going to give the last word to our guests. I want to thank Andrea Haley, the CEO of Vote.org, our biggest voting advocacy group in the United States. Andrea, any last words of advice for our listeners? Yeah, I think staying, stay interested, stay active, interested, excited about civics. I think everybody has different skill sets to bring. Whether you're in a company that you want to advocate for election day as a holiday or for a company to give out voting information or participate in voting rights, you know, go for it. Whether it's just making sure that your friends and family are registered to vote, go to vote.org. It takes two seconds. Make sure they're registered. Make sure people participate. I think the you know the key right now is staying aware, staying um, and thinking constantly about how can I use my skill sets to further protect our democracy. Do you have design skill sets? That's something everybody needs. Legal skill sets. That's also something people need. Are you great at project managing or just organizing people in your local community? Whatever it is. I think that the reason why there was such large turnout in 2020, it really had to do with everybody leaning in and thinking creatively about what can I do in this moment? Um, organizations like vote.org are great and amazing. We have a fantastic team, but we can't do this work alone. Nobody can. And so I think that it's really on each and every one of us to think about how can we apply ourselves, stay awake, stay vigilant, and make sure um, that we protect our democracy. I think it's something, a shared amount American value that we, that we all have. I've been really excited to see, you know, in the last few years, how brands, again, like Under Armour, like Prudential, like, you know, how they've leaned into this moment. So there's also something to say about, you know, getting your company involved um, wherever you work, wherever you are. Mm -hmm. How are we all going to lean in to make sure that um, our very, you know, fragile democracy is one that ultimately will be the healthiest uh, that it possibly can be thrive and help us to get to this goal of 80% voter turnout in the country. So I think those would be my final words. I think democracy is something to celebrate. I get excited to get up and at it every single day. I hope that uh, lots of people across this nation will join us. Andrea Haley, well said. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Caring Economy. Folks, do check out vote.org and see how you can be a part of this continuing American experiment. Thank you again, Andrea. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.